Tis. And turn back in the church Bibles, if you would, to page 1062, to Luke 24. That's page 1062 in the red church Bibles. And as you do that, let me pray for us. Father, we do acknowledge before you that without the reality of the resurrection, that the whole experience of meeting here this morning would be a complete waste of time. And so we pray that you would help us to understand more the truth of the resurrection. May your spirit be our teacher as we study the scriptures together, that we might live in the light of its glorious truth. For your name's sake. Amen. Well, I wonder whether you've ever played the uh, Chatsworth Challenge. Uh, My wife and I play each time we visit the spectacular country home of the Duke and Duchess of Devonshire. The challenge is to guess how long it will take before you bump into someone you know. If you want to get away from Fullwood, uh, Chatsworth's not really the place to go. I guess the reason why Chatsworth is so popular is because there's so many amazing things to see. I remember the first time that I visited as a, as a child, the one thing that stuck in my mind more than anything else was the painting of a violin by the 17th century artist Jan van der Vaart in the State Music Room. If you've been, uh, you'll remember it. The painting is so realistic you feel sure you could walk over to the door on which the image lies and lift a real musical instrument into your hands. Is it just a picture or is it real? And so far as people think about it, I guess many will ask the same question about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A mere idea that has inspired some of the greatest artists in history or something more, something more substantial, something real. Is Christianity nothing more than a noble idea? Or did God really step into human history? The one who defines reality, transforming reality through a brutal death and a glorious resurrection. And for those first century writers who wrote their accounts closest to the events themselves, there is no question at all Jesus' resurrection was real. So Luke, whose account we read from this morning, makes it clear in the introduction to his gospel account that he has carefully investigated everything. He has consulted eyewitness testimony. And the result is an orderly account of the things that really happened so that we, the readers, might be certain of the things that we have been taught. And so you come to the resurrection account in chapter 24, and the first thing to note about Easter is that it is about a real body. A real body. See, Luke makes clear what Jesus has made certain. Easter Sunday was no conjuring trick with bones in the minds and imaginations of Jesus' zealous but deluded followers. 
So even as the two, two of the disciples are recording the extraordinary events of the Emmaus Road, Jesus stands amongst his bewildered and confused disciples. Verse 37. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. Now, it's worth mentioning here that although the disciples should have been, they were clearly not expecting a physical resurrection. If you cast your eye back to verse 11 of this chapter, you, you see the disciples hear the report of the women, and verse 11, they did not believe because the women's words seemed to them like nonsense. And you think, well... They might well seem like nonsense. People were no more likely to rise from the dead in the first century than they are in the 21st century. You see, we are, as C.S. Lewis put it, easily guilty of chronological snobbery. So we assume that because we are technologically more sophisticated than our first century forebears, that we are somehow intellectually more competent as if those living 500 years ago were fairly stupid, and those who lived 2,000 years ago had the cerebral capacity of an amoeba. Now, when it comes to death, I suspect that there are few cultures that are more stupid than our own youth-worshipping, death-denying society. Unlike many people today... People in the first century knew what a dead body looked like. They knew what a dead body felt like, smelt like. And so contemporary delusions about eternal usefulness, youthfulness were just inconceivable. The idea that the resurrection was some sort of hallucinatory wish fulfillment amongst Jesus' followers is simply ridiculous. Jesus was dead, and dead bodies do not come back to life, not in the first century, any more than they do in the 21st century. And yet you come to verse 38 of chapter 24, and here was a real body. Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. A real body. A body that could speak. A body that could be seen and touched. A body that could eat. Easter is about a real body. And then it actually tells me something very important about Jesus And actually something very important about reality itself. You see, a real body tells me that Jesus was who he claimed to be and he did what he claimed to do. 
God really came into this world as its saviour and one day he will certainly return as its judge. You see, the resurrection speaks of the possibility of forgiveness in God and the certainty of justice from God. So on the one hand, Jesus' resurrection shows that his death brought peace. So Jesus' announcement to his disciples in verse 36. There is, verse 47, forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. We can be right with God and right with each other through the death of Jesus. On the other hand, the resurrection shows that God's future justice is certain. So in the second half of Luke's book, Acts, Luke records the words of Paul in Athens. And Paul says this, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. See, a real body tells me something very important about Jesus, that he was who he claimed to be and that he did what he claimed to do, that he can be my saviour and he will certainly be my judge. But a real body also tells me something very important about reality itself. For the God who defines what is real transforms what is real in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. See, some people seem troubled with a body that appears and disappears. A body that seems strangely unrecognisable one moment and then suddenly familiar the next. A body that can be mistaken for a ghost and yet can happily tuck into a fish supper. Indeed, if you read John's account, he draws attention to the fact that the disciples were together with the doors locked when Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. How can a real body suddenly appear in a locked room? Well, because Jesus' resurrection transforms reality. He is, as Lewis so wonderfully observed, more real in his resurrection body than the walls themselves. You see, this is the Shadowlands. The really real is yet to come. Now, it doesn't mean that this reality doesn't matter. It does, hugely. Christians believe in life before death, not just life after death. Nevertheless, it is important to be clear that Christianity is not some vague, disembodied future existence where spirits drift aimlessly around space with nothing better to do than sing religious songs. Jesus transforms the whole of reality and his resurrection shows us a life that is more real in every sense than the life we are living now. Often the charge of the sceptic is that Christians are just not living in the real world. 
But the truth of the resurrection is that it is only in Jesus that the real world is found. Both in this life and in the life to come. Well, the second thing to note about Easter from Luke 24 is that it is about a real fulfillment. A real fulfillment. Now, again, Luke makes clear what Jesus made certain. Jesus' death and resurrection were according to plan. So, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus explains to his bewildered disciples that everything had happened just as God had promised. Verse 25, he said to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus makes the same point in verse 44. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Following the lead of many academics and indeed not a few church leaders, lots of people imagine that the Bible is a rather disparate collection of random religious writings. So Sam Harris in his recent book, The End of Faith, dismisses the Bible as a book, quote, showing neither unity of style nor internal consistency. How, he questions, could such a book be authored by an omniscient, omnipotent and omnipresent deity? Well, Jesus seems to insist that a careful and thoughtful reading of the entire Old Testament reveals a remarkable unity and internal consistency. The Bible from beginning to end is one book about one man, the God-man Jesus Christ who came to suffer, to die, and to rise from the dead to secure forgiveness for all who will trust in him. Now, the dust cover of Sam Harris's book, The End of Faith, is, is covered with the endorsements of academics and journalists. Well, one academic, the ubiquitous Richard Dawkins, and various comments from broadsheet journalists. According to The Economist, the book contains a clever thesis by a clever man. It is certainly an interesting read, but to me at least... It is a less than convincing polemic against Christianity, whatever its journalistic approval. Indeed, it is surprising to me how many apparently clever men can dismiss the Bible with their simplistic analyses. If the same cursory critique was applied to their own writings, I suspect that they would be indignant. Clever people often recognise that their own work needs a bit of hard work to understand it yet they seem unwilling to extend the same courtesy to God himself. I suppose I ought not to be surprised, really, to understand that the Bible is a real fulfilment of things promised, to understand that God is really there, and that everything has happened in history according to his plan. To understand that, you need 
verse 45, to have your mind opened. Jesus opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. That's why understanding the Bible isn't, in the end, an intellectual achievement. If God is God, then in the first place our intellects must be humbled before God's reality and not exalted in an unreality of our own making. That you need your mind opening to understand the united message of the Bible explains why some of the greatest intellects of history have been Christians and why some of the most influential academics have been atheists. See, it is not that the Bible is irrational. It is rather that it is supra-rational. You don't need to suspend your reason when you read it but you need more than your reason to understand it. And as you begin to understand it, and grow in your understanding of it, seeing that the Bible is one book about one man, the God-man Jesus Christ, promises made and promises kept, seeing that is a remarkable encouragement to go on trusting the promise-making and promise-keeping God in the midst of all life's difficulties and trials. A real body. A real fulfilment. It means that the Christian faith is not wish fulfilment, but a certain hope. An anchor for the soul, firm and secure, whatever this troubled and often troubling world throws at you. A real body. A real fulfilment. Thirdly, Easter is about a real offer. It's interesting to know that Jesus sees the fulfilment of God's promises not only in terms of a divine rescue procured, but also a divine rescue proclaimed. What is fulfilled is not just verse 46 that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead but also verse 47, that repentance and forgiveness of sin will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And so a message that rang out first in Jerusalem has spread through Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And to some people, Sheffield is as good as the ends of the earth. I remember at theological college telling the wife of one of our lecturers that we were going to Sheffield Her response, goodness, did you have any choice in the post? (laughs) Jesus says, verse 46, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. And so today, Even in Sheffield, even in Fulwood, part of the fulfilment of God's eternal promises is taking place. So whether you've come today as a committed follower or a questioning skeptic, whether you're a regular attender or an occasional visitor, God wanted you here this day to hear of a real body 
a real fulfilment, a real offer. You see, it may be that you're here and you have real questions about the truthfulness of the Christian faith. Good. Genuine Christianity is never afraid of open-minded scrutiny. If you've got genuine questions, you should be allowed to ask them. It's why we run the Open to Question course here. An opportunity to examine for yourselves the claims of Jesus Christ. And a man who has been so influential, is it not worth at least once in your life looking for yourself? It's a course that starts in a few weeks' time, Tuesday evenings, 9th of May. But then maybe you're here today and your question is not so much, is this true? But can it really be for me? After all, I'm not really religious. And if I'm honest, I don't really think that I'm good enough for God. The idea that Christianity is only for the respectable and the moral and the religious is remarkably persistent. I don't know whether you caught the coverage of the Manchester Passion, the contemporary passion play that drew huge crowds in the streets of Manchester on Friday. One writer in yesterday's Guardian commented on how different this passion play was from the more conventional medieval passion plays. He put it like this. Never before has the music of so many blasphemers, adulteresses, judases, sodomites, narcissists, drunkards, pill poppers and 'er ne'er-do-wells been compiled to celebrate the passing and second coming of Jesus. But is that really the case? When Jesus walked the earth, he was called a glutton. And a drunkard? He was ever a friend of tax collectors and society's sinners? So also this morning, in this building, there is music and singing, and yet if the truth be told, in the words of the Guardian, this building is full of Blasphemers and adulterers and Judases, sodomites, narcissists, drunkards, pill poppers and ne'er-do-wells. It is full of those who have found in the suffering and risen Saviour peace with God. Forgiveness. A fresh start even for rebels like us. You know, Easter is a real offer. For you, whoever you are, whatever you have done. But a real offer needs a real response. And that's true whether you've been a follower of Jesus for decades or whether this morning is the first time the pieces of the jigsaw have really fallen into place. You can't hear the message of Easter and do nothing. 
Today must be a day of repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. In other words, a real response must be an active response. When you understand that Jesus' resurrection is a real body, a real fulfilment, a real offer even for someone like you, then you need to make a real response You need, as Jesus puts it, to repent. To turn from your sin and to trust Christ for forgiveness. See, visit Chatsworth and walk over to Van der Vaart's clever painting of a violin and you will find yourself grasping at thin air. Take hold of the offer of Easter Sunday. And you will discover someone more real than you ever imagined. The risen Lord, whose death can deal with the past and whose life can transform the present and the future forever. Well, let's pray, shall we? Just take a moment of of quiet as we respond to God and then Paul will lead us in our prayers.